Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelham Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writing critic. And this week we're discussing Nomadland and Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, one film about human impermanence and the other about the unfortunate murder of a young revolutionary. Um, but before we get into those two films, very uh, serious two films. Very serious two films. Um, tell me, Colin, what what are you up to? What's what's going on? So I, along with the rest of everybody, I guess, has hit the pandemic wall this week. Ah, you know, it's not fun. This is not a fun banter point, but it's funny if you really think about it. Like when you wake up first thing in the morning and you have like an emotional breakdown and you feel hopeless about the world. You know, like <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I love how I'm like trying to spin this into something. Uh, lighthearted like relatable hashtag relatable <laughs> in addition to that my plants are dying and uh there's oh. nothing i can do about it so if anybody has any advice uh, for how to get rid of root rot oh uh, other, other than the stuff that you know you already need to do which i have done which is uh, let me know they're what, just giving up you, on what me what do you do for root rot like well you so basically you take it out you get rid of the rotten root and then you change the soil and then you it's not that i was over watering i have like a set i've got one of those apps that's a set schedule mm-hmm. um but for some reason i guess the soil that i first got to change it had fungal gnats in it Ooh. and then i had to change the soil again but by that point it was fucked and and now it doesn't matter doesn't matter what what i do nothing matters they just have given up and i'm there with them mentally you know me and my plants i get it yeah like, your so. plants have also reached the pandemic wall absolutely how about you what's what's <laughs> been new what's been new over in in jenny land well i do not have any plants partly for reasons like this um but me, it's hard man i know it's it's too much responsibility for me on the other hand for for me just like finding the the small pleasures in this dark time um i just got dessert person the cookbook by claire savitz in the mail um i ordered it on bookshop a while ago and i'm really excited actually i am not a big user of like physical cookbooks but there's just been so much buzz and like people making everything from this um i'm gonna give it a shot is there anything that you're eyeing that you want to make first Mm, i think i've seen a lot of people making the the bagels and i've had yeah that'd be great yeah i've had one bagel making experience before and it went pretty well so this time maybe i'll try it with her recipe and see how it goes so hey yeah you can never go wrong with making bread man yeah obviously for for real yeah great so that (laughs) we are in kind of different spots places i think emotionally but now we're about to get deep into the emotional existential just like we're gonna feel a lot of things in this upcoming segment so yeah pelin bring us right into it what did you watch this week oh man i watched nomadland (laughs) and uh We watched this together last night because uh, it just came out on Hulu. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, what is there to say except we were both, like you said, we were extremely in our feelings. So for those that don't know, Nomadland is Chloe Zhao's third film, feature film, and it stars Frances McDormand as Fern, the, the protagonist of the film. The film itself is based on the non-fiction book of the same name by Jessica Bruder. It you know, the, the title itself is self-explanatory, but in case you wanted to have a little bit more context, and this is not a spoiler alert, it's the first thing that you see in the film. You know, it opens with a fact. Empire Nevada was a company town. It ceased to exist after the mining company US Gypsum closed the plant in 2010. 
And so taking this fact into stock, we follow Fern basically a year after her husband died. They're both from that town. The film is set two years after the plant closes, and it's a, a year after her uh, her husband's death. Uh, so it's 2012. And because it's 2012, as you all may m- remember, I had just graduated from college two years prior to that. This was the Great Recession, and America was a bit fucked. The, wo- the whole world was a bit fucked. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film follows Fern around as she lives out, out of her van. And she takes on seasonal work in the area in the West. So one of that seasonal work, for example, is is Amazon during the holiday season. So it's just packaging up everyone's Christmas presents and whatever they're ordering. And, you know, after that work is done, she meets a friend there and then follows a friend out to join a subculture of people that live very much like her for a myriad of, of reasons. And by meeting these people, by seeing how they live, similar how she lives... We get to know them, and we get to know her, and then we get to know their approach in life and how they approach existence as a whole. So that's like pretty much what it's about. What did you think of it, Jenny? Oh, that's like a sigh of like appreciation and just like the feeling of being overwhelmed because this movie is. I mean, I I texted you about it, Pell, and I was like, this is I think as close to perfect as like a film can get in my eyes. Um, yeah. I was totally blown away, and I didn't expect to be. I didn't really have any expectations besides knowing that this film has been like critically acclaimed and everything. Mm-hmm. But just wow, this is truly like a, a special you know work of film and, and and art to to watch. Yeah, you know, you watch the trailer for it, which I had done like you, like I think about a year ago like it was a really fucking long oh, time yeah ago. and then we heard the critic reviews coming in and they were stellar so we were all excited like i was i knew that this film would emotionally ruin me um i really didn't understand the extent of it <laughs> so so a lot of that has to do with the way that the film is shot it feels a little bit like a documentary and the, the main reason for that being apart from francis mcdormand there's another actor david strathen uh, they're the only two actors that are playing a character everyone else is playing a version of themselves it's not to say that they weren't cast because they were but it's their own it's their real names and they are not given lines per se but conversations are steered and then because of the editing it just feels a little bit more scripted uh, but these are real people and the it's real a real nomads, nomadic community. Yeah. And obviously, these are real landscapes of America. And the beauty of that and the way that it's directed really makes you feel like you are living, you are watching something true. Even though, you know, Fern's life is fictional, it still feels incredibly true because it's nestled in between real stories. Yeah. And Chloe Zhao, like her, I mean, I really, I haven't watched her previous films. Um, so this is kind of my first real brush up with her work. But her directing, like, from this film is just so understated. Like, I don't know, it's it's hard to explain, but I think your comparison to a documentary is correct, where it's just like, it feels like events are sort of just unfolding in front of the camera. Although, obviously, we know there's so much more work put into creating uh, a film like this. But everything yeah. just feels so, you know, expertly, carefully, lightly touched. It's really a marvel to watch. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is obviously, the way that she directs is very similar. Like, she's had comparisons to Terrence. Malik, 
Mm. Uh, which is understandable because it's like, you know, the beautiful vista of the landscape. But I know I talk about Kelly Reichardt all the time. She's one of my favorite directors, but I compared this to Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichardt as well. And it's because it's basically the sim- a similar theme in which it's someone that is houseless, that is living out of their car, and the little difficulties that you come across in a life like that and how overblown they are because of the circumstance that you're in. Obviously, I think with Fern, with this character, she doesn't come across that much difficulty, all things considered. She lives a difficult life, but there's only one thing that goes wrong, and then she does end up having a resolution for that. So much of this is about choice, and that's the thing that really not took me aback, but you really understand why someone would live this life. You really do. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that many of the people in this film are over the age of 50. You and I, we're both young. (laughs) Like, you're in your late 20s, I'm in my early 30s. Aging is something that is just pricking our consciousness. Mm -hmm. Whereas for these people, this is their life. And they have spent their entire lives working. Because of this great recession, they are dealing with some kind of loss, whether it's a loss of savings, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it's a loss of their health, you know, these things all come up in the film. And this is their idea, not idea, but this is their way of regaining some of that control or hanging on to something that they can still keep for themselves, which is, which is that control. Yeah. I gotta say, like, the moment when I started crying, like the first time I started crying while watching this is hearing the story of one of these nomads, you know, an elderly woman named Swanky who said, you know, she's terminal cancer. You know, she's made the decision. I'm going to go travel to my favorite spot in the world where I saw all of these swallows, you know, just flying around like in the air towards me, around me. This is like kind of the happiest moment I've ever had. So knowing that I, my life is sort of coming to an end, I'm going to go back there again. I'm going to hit the road. I'm going to keep going for that. And, you know, having seen that already, I already feel like, you know, what more can I ask for in this life? Yeah. So it's just like her conscious decision to not go to a hospital, not go to some sort of hospice care, not wait around and, you know, waiting sort of for the eventual end of her life, but to go back out there and see the thing that brought her the most sort of pleasure and joy in this world. Um, yeah. And just hearing that story was like, fuck, I just, yeah. before I knew it, just like the tears just started streaming down (laughs) yeah well because it's like what is enough in this life you know Mm -hmm. at what point do we decide that we have lived a full life right you know the reason why you cried and the reason why i cried at that moment is because i can't imagine being in that position but to have such wise and exemplary i don't know if that can be me maybe you'll never be me maybe i'll never feel satisfied at the end of my life about the life that I've led, but it really puts it into perspective for you as a person, if you are not dealing with a terminal illness or if you're not, you know, 75 and up, to really take those experiences in life and savor them completely <laughs> the way that Swanky does. Yeah, it's very emotional. It's mm-hmm. incredibly emotional. How did you feel about the way that Fern's life was depicted? Because I think a common trap that many directors, both fiction and nonfiction, fall into is, you know, when they're depicting poverty or when they're, or when they're depicting like working class people is that it can feel a little bit exploitative. How did you feel about it in this film? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, from my perspective, I didn't think the film felt 
you know, exploitative in any way. I thought that Fern as a character is so, there, there's so many sort of dimensions to her and you see just how like fiercely independent she is, the way that she values her, her autonomy and her freedom and her choice and her personal space, like above all else. And she is so sort of like generous and kind, but also tightly guarded at the same time. Like whenever you see some attempts at like intimacy, emotional intimacy, like how sh- she can become just like immediately prickly, like yeah, um, spikes up. And yeah, I mean, she really sort of, you can surmise, I guess, at least that so much of this, like you said, is about choice for her and how mm-hmm. she does not want to, you know, live with her sister in that comfortable suburban home. She does not want to stay with, you know, someone who invites her to to stay longer with him um, because, you know, he truly likes her. Yeah. She has her own mind and her own um, sort of very strong, independent will as like a result of all of these things that she's experienced in life as well as yeah. from her own, you know, just like deep-seated personality. Um, yeah. She's like truly the way that she's written and the, the way that Frances McDormand portrays her is just so, so well-rounded. And uh, you can really see, you know, exactly the, the kind of person that this would be and how, you know, the choices maybe you would pick differently. Maybe you'd pick the same, but it's mm-hmm. totally justified for, you know, the kind of person that she's portrayed to be. Yeah. Even if you make a different choice to Fern, you will respect Fern. Mm-hmm. That's that's like the, the the stateliness, I guess, that Frances McDormand brings to this. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like everything that you and I, every, everything that everyone loves about Frances McDormand is jacked up to 10 in this film in terms of, you know, who she played in Fargo, for example, like that no-nonsense can think for her herself kind and but also unfussy mm. sensibilities it's complete like this this all over this film yeah i i agree with you i think it is something that it's not so much her circumstance but it's her personality that we really see and that's the thing that makes it feel like it doesn't feel exploitative or navel gazy it just feels honest to this character and i think in terms of her life so much of it has to do with chloe Zhao's editing because she mm-hmm. edited this film as well as oh, wrote wow. and directed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll notice, you know, obviously in the first half an hour of the film, especially quick cuts, very quick cuts away. Mm. Like we get a little bit of detail about what she's doing at that moment. Then we're onto the next thing that she's doing. And then now onto the next thing that she's doing. There's no transitional moments, really. We're just in it and then we're out of it and then we're in something else. And there's so much to be said about that. I think many filmmakers mistake long pregnant shots for deep meaning. And I think that's not, you know, I think when this film, especially you see that that's not necessarily a strength and you can overdo it. And I think with Chloe Zhao, like she knows the moments to stop and take in and um, they come a little bit later. So she just kind of fills you with information. You take in this information and then she gives you just a second to breathe and process it. And it's just, it's so artfully done. Yeah. Like, I just, it just really works. Like, right. that, that's how pacing works yeah. to and fuck like, you up emotionally. And there's very little, you know, exposition in terms of, like, laying the ground. Besides, you know, the tiny bit of context at the beginning, you don't really know much about fur and everything sort of reveals itself very naturally, yeah. very organically throughout the course of the film. That's just, like, really exceptional, um, both you know, writing and um, and direction and, and editing. Yeah, you're, you're like as a writer and director, you don't have you don't owe the audience answers immediately. Mm-hmm. Like it opens up with Fern smelling a work jacket, like a man's work mm-hmm. jacket, 
and looking at it emotionally. And then obviously later on you find out that her husband has died and that's why she's had to go. Yeah, she's just a she's just a great character and I think it's really well acted by um Frances McDormand. You can tell that she she's surrounded by a lot of non-actors most of the time. Mm. Um and it's cool to kind of watch her navigate that because she's obviously she's in character but she's also I guess not I wouldn't say babysitting but she is just having conversations with real people at the same time and that's right. the, that must be like I, I guess a bit weird as an actor but i'm sure it was an experience for her and i think she like she chloe Zhao, like they did live in vans i think throughout the course of yeah, this filming. yeah so yeah there is also that level of like experiencing it yeah chloe Zhao's van was called akira oh you know? yeah Great. so that's like a thing uh in in the film is like you name your van <laughs> Um, and Fern's van is called Vanguard, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. Yeah, I guess in terms of themes, I wanted to talk to you about, about that depiction of being a nomad, right? And, and what it means as a lifestyle and then also what it means as a human being that is also housed, you know, like you and I are. There's just something, I, I think the thing that really hit me emotionally was, um, Fern is untethered. She, uh, after her husband dies, she, you know, she doesn't have any kids. She lived in this town with her husband. And, you know, we get some context clues as to the type of person that she is through her sister. But there are instances where she, yeah, she can be tethered to a place and she, and she protests against it. Again, we wouldn't make those choices. Many people wouldn't make those choices because we are used to a certain home comfort. But for Fern, it, it, comfort is something entirely different. The nomadic lifestyle has obviously existed for cent- for centuries and centuries. Like my family, I'm Kurdish. Kurdish people were nomadic people. So it was a really poetic depiction of it for me. And, you know, so much of that has to do with the landscape and has to do with the way that the landscape is shot. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to live that nomadic lifestyle? Because to me, the way that I understood it was that life is temporary and life is there is no permanence to life the only truth is death like we are on this earth for a very brief time and the nomadic lifestyle seems to be the most accurate depiction of that or i guess the embodiment of that truth but it's scary at mm-hmm. the same time and it's there's just something about that friction i guess of people that have accepted that this is actually the most real of a life that you can have um, is going from place to place and meeting people and people to people and having these little experiences of joy. Right. Is that, is that real life or like what's real life? You know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you see this in the film when you have the circle of the, the nomads like talking about why they've chosen this lifestyle. Um, like you mentioned before, many of them are older. You know, there's stories of I worked all my life and I found that my social security at the end is like, not enough to survive on or like I have a a loved one who you know they're got diagnosed with some terminal illness and they're they got ready to finally get out there and enjoy you know life as much as they could um but it was too late like they had already died from a lifetime of of working and toiling and like I guess the expectation the ideal life that or not even the ideal life but just like the expected conventional life for people here um you know the aspirations of the middle class or whatever are to mm. get a stable job you work you know basically the majority of your life is spent working yeah. at, at some desk 
um, making enough to live a comfortable life, enough to have a home, enough to, you know, cover health insurance. And then it's basically only when you're near the end of your life that you finally get to stop. And the promise is that you'll have enough to live comfortably and enjoy the rest of your life. But yeah. we know more and more now, like, that's not the reality for a lot of people. No. And, so and especially, it's like, especially not after a recession, which yeah. is, you know, when this time is set. Right. And like add in the anxieties now for people our age about, you know, climate change, just like the dwindling of social security and just this, the mm. social safety net. Then it's like, what is the promise in return for this kind of lifestyle that you're committing yourself to? That yeah. is, you know, I think you could say pretty, pretty objectively, like, the work is life mindset sucks and this like reality sucks. So yeah, I think it's going to speak to a lot of people who have those anxieties who are like, mm-hmm. what is this all for? And for like the people in this film, they made the conscious decision like, you know, all that stuff, that's really not worth anything. And the real sort of life that you'll be able to have is from truly living and like untethering yourself from those things. It doesn't overly romanticize this, like, as much as my saying this, like, it shows at the end, you know, when these people are older, you know, one bad fall or bad setback that can land you in the hospital. And it's a question of like, well, how do you pay for that? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many risks and and burdens that, that come with aging and, you know, losing one's health and the question of like, how do you take care of all of this, um, yeah. which I think makes it so, so hard to, I don't know, I guess, like, promote this kind of lifestyle if you really yeah. don't know what you're getting into. It's yeah. just like a, I, I don't know, so many things would be different if we had universal health care, if we had social yeah. safety nets, yeah. all of these things. Um, yeah. But I think yeah. that theme of mortality is really, that's really present in this in this film. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things that I think spoke to me the most about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting reading about this film. A lot of critics have talked about how it smooths over the politics of it because they're in Trump's America. Mm. You know, we don't hear any political opinions by, you know, overtly out and out political opinions by anyone in this film. But it's actually the most political film I've seen in Mm -hmm. a long time because it's about the social fabric. And it's like you said, it's so much of what these people are going through is about a lifetime of work and then the bottom completely falling out from underneath mm-hmm. them. And what is that if not a damning critique of capitalism, you know? And I guess it's interesting because I think Chloe Zhao has talked about it in terms of there are lines that encapsulate the socialist essence of this film, which it is. I don't think she says that this film is socialist, but... There are moments that she's pointed out. And I guess more than anything, I, I, I was curious about this lifestyle, especially because, you know, this week, for example, we GoFundMe has been doing more work than the government has, mm. you know. This film comes at a time when these people do meet each other and there is a community and they do look out for each other and they give each other free stuff and drive the other to to get to replace their car type, whatever it is. But it is essentially everyone is in their own van and it is solitary to some Mm. extent. And we do see Fern by herself more often than not. Any conversation that she has with with anyone in this film, it's pretty like they don't really get into it. And that Um, might be what they're even seeking. Again, like the, the idea of choice and what kind of life you're choosing for yourself. It is, if not a very lonely film, then at least like solitary is the right word. Um, There's so many moments of just still and quiet and one, you know, lone person staring out at 
this the vastness of the land, um, which is also really, really sort of highlighted in a spec, just like spectacular way here. Thinking yeah. about the the West and just the idea of all of this this grand, empty, uh, beautiful land still in the in the U.S. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I wanted to talk to you a little about Chloe Zhao, uh, specifically. So just to have a bit of background, Chloe Zhao grew up in China and then moved to the UK when she was 14 for boarding school and then around the age of 16, I think, for high school in America. And then she's stayed in America since. But there were some rumors going around because I think her family is wealthy. I think her father is wealthy specifically, but she has, I believe, self-funded many of her earlier films. You know, there was this critique going, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit because many people haven't, a lot of people haven't brought it up. I think in in one interview, she talks about the rumor that her father is a billionaire is actually false. But I do believe that she does come from a wealthy family. Whether or not she's wealthy is besides the point. I think this is relevant in that, you know, it, it begs the question of what kind of filmmaker is, I guess, using the subjects of poverty or subjects of marginalized people in her work and i think chloe Zhao, her previous two films like her first one was about native americans uh on a reservation she filmed that on a reservation and then the second one is obviously uh the writer about uh basically a poor white guy so uh, this is something i wanted to talk to you about because i think you know a lot of the time we talk about exploitation i think more than anything as films about class become more and more popular what do we expect from the filmmaker? Like, do you think that that Zhao's upbringing or her family or the way that she is affected how she made this film? Well, I think any part of your upbringing, any part of your background, the way that you experience life as, you know, whatever kind of person, a wealthy person, a poor person, a, a Chinese person, a, a white American, any of that, like that all, of course, informs how you approach your art as like a creator. Um mm-hmm whether you intend it to or not, like these are, this is just, it affects like kind of your worldview and the sort of sensibility you imbue into your films. But like I said, she has a really light, a deceptively light hand in this. I don't really see any overt parts of her background really come into this. Like for Mm -hmm. my, where I'm sitting, you know, you don't get the sense that, you know, person raised in China made this film necessarily. Like it's not... Yeah. Like a lot of Asian filmmakers in the US, like the way that they come up is by making, you know, kind of more Asian films. You don't really get the sense of that at all. Although yeah. the way that the sort of like loneliness of the film and the the sort of alternating between the kind of industrial kind of emptiness and then the the wider expanse of land emptiness it kind mm-hmm. of does remind me of modern Chinese filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like there's so much of that in, in Ash is the Purest White, just um, yeah. juxtaposing like these different kind of landscapes in a country that has just like gone through rapid transformation yeah. um, and the tension between those. So I like knowing her background now and like comparing it to the film that I saw, I can get a similar sort of like vibe or like feeling from it. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I think, it's always a tough question because on the one hand, maybe the temptation is to ask like, well, is this person qualified to make this film or whatever? But mm-hmm. I think that question is like kind of a trap. I don't know. I think yeah. there, when it comes to like art or filmmaking, I think it depends on how you do your work. Like if you're not, you know, from, yeah. even if you are like a person from that community or who has that experience, I think what kind of informs that in addition to like lived experiences, just like, 
how much research you put into it, how many mm-hmm. people you talk to or you hire from, you know, people of that community or who have experienced mm-hmm. this. And I don't know, I, I get the feeling from this film that a lot of work went into it. And I think people can disagree with me, but I, I didn't get the, the sense of ex- exploitation or, or, you know, wrongful qualification or whatever. I think this is, uh, I completely agree. And I think that this is an example of someone's personality being the thing that dictates the type of filmmaker that they are. Mm. You know, she, it's so fraught because I think what it comes down to with filmmaking is, or like any kind of creation of any kind of art, is just being mindful of these things, of just being aware and just being thoughtful about what it is that you're trying to say and how this depicts a certain type of person. You can come from any type of background, you know, and and if that isn't there, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, so we obviously cannot recommend Nomadland enough. It is mm-hmm. on Hulu, so watch it for the free. Chloe Zhao's next film is going to be an MCU film, Eternals, which is fascinating. Mm, <laughs> That's going to be for a bit all of... directors eventually. Yeah, yeah. She is obviously going into the franchise landscape. Good for her. Get that big old check. One for them, one for you. Um, hopefully the film after Eternals will be great, but I'm excited to see what she does with Eternals. Honestly, it's the same thing that we talked about with Taika Waititi. Like when a director brings their own thing to a franchise, it's always interesting. But until then, No Man Land is fantastic. And that was No Land. Jenny, what is your pick for the week? I. I'm going to be talking about Judas and the Black Messiah Ooh. on HBO Max. So this is like a, a biographical drama set in late 60s Chicago. It's about Fred Hampton, the you know activist, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, uh, socialist, all of those things. And William O'Neill, an FBI informant who infiltrated the party and ultimately sort of betrayed Hampton. So based off of kind of real life events, of course, dramatized. And this film is directed by Shaka King, produced by Ryan Coogler, among others, starring Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, and like Keith Stanfield as William O'Neill. So this film was interesting, I think, in a couple mm-hmm. of ways. First, I thought there was like a lot of potential for it as a vehicle to introduce Fred Hampton to the broader public because mm-hmm. like including myself, I sort of knew a tiny bit about him, knew his name, knew like the one-liner of what he was about, but literally in school, like this he never came up. This was mm-hmm. not taught in my American public school sort of education. Mm-hmm. Um what did you know about Fred Hampton bef- before this villain? I mean, growing up in England, basically nothing. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I started my social justice journey and I learned about the Black Panthers, I did learn about him as mm. one of the people that was assassinated by the FBI. I remember being at a, a gallery and the gallery had, it was a door that was depicting, or it was Fred Hampton's front door with the bullet holes in it. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, and then, it, you know, the gallery had like the little, the information next to it and i read about it then uh and and obviously the the thing that struck with me immediately was how young he was and um 21 how very very young he was nine he was 21 when he died and obviously that's that's you know a tale as old as time socialist revolutionaries around the world have been getting assassinated uh very familiar with it from in turkey we have our version of him yeah 
that that's pretty much all I knew. Yeah. So this would have been a great chance, I think, and potentially is still kind of a chance to tell this story to a, a bigger audience. You know, HBO Max, like maybe it'll pick up just like regular old viewers, something like that. You get a s- some sense of like who Fred Hampton is, like in terms of his mm-hmm. charisma, his magnetism, things like that, like in this film. I found the the parts that I personally found the most interesting, the most compelling were, you know, the speeches, the rallies, how he like taught his like mm-hmm. comrades, how he formed the Rainbow Coalition. Those were to me the most sort of riveting moments. And I could have watched like an, uh, hours of just that stuff, which yeah. uh, if that describes you as well, maybe I should probably watch a documentary like um, The Murder of Fred Hampton, uh, which is available on Amazon for, mm-hmm. for rent right now. Yeah. But I, other than that, I think one of the critiques has been, and I, I agree with this critique is how this movie depiction basically watered down Hampton and his, you know, mm. radical politics. Yeah, like, I didn't really like how much the film focused on his romance with Deborah Johnson, played by Dominique Fishback. And also, like, he was sort of removed from the film because he was in prison for a lot of the time, which, mm. of course, it did happen. But it really kind of took away much opportunity to learn about him and more of his politics and what he's done, like, all of his really great accomplishments. Mm. I don't know. What did, did you feel the same way? So, I've got to admit, I don't really like biopics in general. Yeah, yeah, me too, um, probably. So that's one, but I didn't, I did enjoy this film. Like I did think this film was good in terms of the critique about the, I guess, watering down of Fred Hampton. It's, it's hard because of what this film is about, which is William O'Neill. And yeah, it's more about of, him. Yeah. And the, the thing, what's interesting about this film is that in terms of a biopic, it is doing something that I think a lot of biopics are beginning to do, which makes them a little bit more interesting because they, you know, they fall out of that standard snooze fest format of just cradle to grave whereas you know you take a point in someone's life and that encapsulates who they are as a person and you and you talk about that and this kind of follows that format in that it picked a strand of fred hampton's life in which it was william o'neill that basically set him up to get assassinated and um it tried to focus on that and it made it like all films the more focus there is the better it is yeah it's just really difficult with someone like fred hampton that has not gotten enough coverage or dramatization of his life and it is difficult because i think he is someone that comes once every century he's that kind of person you cannot be that young and that influential for a city, it, it just doesn't happen that often. So it's re- you really want to be mindful of that person's story. It's just difficult with a film like this, where the framework is set up so that it isn't so much about him. It's tough. I mean, I, I get the critique, but at the same time, I'm not sure if it's applicable to this film. And obviously, my next point would be someone should make that film. Someone should make that that film that details his activism and details what he did for the city of Chicago. Will that happen? I hope so. I'm surprised that this film even did happen, considering that it's with a major studio, like a major American studio. I don't know. That surprised me because the bar is on the floor for me in terms of the way that big American studios deal with their messy state authoritarian past. You know, uh, a lot of studios 
are propaganda machines. <laughs> so it, it, I don't know. I, I was just like kind of taken aback that this film was even made. Like um, pleasantly surprised. But, yeah, it did surprise, especially the way that the FBI is depicted in this film. Yeah, they're like portrayed to be like murderous, you know, tools of the state, essentially, which is what yeah, just, they, they were and what they are. Yeah. Um. So that... That, yeah, that was a little bit um, surprising the way that, I mean, of course, it tried to, you know, pay a little bit of sympathy for one of the FBI agents who was working with Bill O'Neill primarily. Did you um, think so? I think it's, so it did the trick of, it made him seem a little bit more sympathetic, but then at the end, it showed how he truly, you know, went ahead and gave his soul to the state. So he did, it, all, like, he, all he did was question it very gently there was more sympathy also to o'neill of course who is like a very interesting figure if you can imagine someone being in that actual position in real life like jail time you know punishment versus benefiting from this kind of betrayal it's a really hard position to be in i'm sure there's a lot of sort of ambivalence and ambiguity over like how did he really feel like in real life um the actual o'neill he Definitely was, like, really ambivalent when he appeared in this documentary that, like, sort of sets up the framework for this movie. Mm-hmm. He was like, do I feel like I betrayed someone? Absolutely not. I had no allegiance to the Panthers. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, when this film, this documentary was released, you know, a few decades ago, he more or less attempted to kill himself and then walked into traffic and got hit by car, which I think was ruled as a suicide also. Mm-hmm. So there was like a lot of sort of like, you know, conflicted feelings, ambivalence about what he did, presumably. This film, it has that sort of ambiguity, but in a slightly more sympathetic light, I think. I think the problem was that like, you don't really know anything about this guy in yeah. the way that he's portrayed in this film. Like, you don't really know his his background, his interiority. Like, what is he thinking beyond this sort of like back and forth conflicted feelings about what he's doing like portraying someone whose politics he kind of agrees with versus like sort of pulling out and benefiting himself and and not getting killed himself from this so maybe some of the weakness that i feel was the fact that it did devote more time to o'neill and his like conflict but it didn't really flesh it out as much right like like, if if you're gonna do o'neill do o'neill Right. right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it did the best that it could, I think, in terms of being stuck between incarceration and <laughs> being a snitch, basically. It's really difficult to, right. especially like considering when this happened, he was 17. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And what this kind is of another choices film. are you meant to make at that age? Right. And this is another thing, like, if I understand why they chose these actors, but it really. Oh, it really kind of obscures the fact that these people were so fucking young yeah, when they that's had this the only... life or death you know, situation on their hands. Yeah, that's the only thing. I, I think it's fine that they look older because I think someone brought up that like everyone in the 60s, like everyone beyond, like before the time of basically the early 2000s, for some reason, everyone just looked older than they actually were. <laughs> um, that's fine. It's just I wish it was somehow in some kind of exposition worked its way into the script that this person was 17 and that was communicated to us um like i think i think shaka king did a really good job like this is his first major feature film and it's something very tough to depict like it's it's hard it's hard to showcase someone like fred hampton and a story like him and o'neill and i think that he did the best that he could and i think it really like i thought it was a good film I, i i completely understand the critiques but in terms of entertainment value and in terms of how it affected me 
emotionally, just in, it just as a depiction of the terrorism of the state towards socialist figures and what it can do to on a, both on an individual level and also on a on a bigger level, like institutionally, it did the job. Uh, this week for Culture Notes, it is a little bit of appreciation for WandaVision and what it's doing for its cast of, I think, really good <laughs> actors who yeah. some of them have, have like maybe not really gotten their chance in the spotlight before. Yeah. So one example that I am finding really personally amusing and also cute is Randall Park and the way <laughs> that TikTok teens young people tiktok users are all over him yeah it's Um, funny i love it yeah there's been like a a kind of a a mini trend or meme or whatever on tiktok where you know they've discovered that he has like well over 100 um credits like on his imdb and he's just been in like like this guy has been working for a long time and Mm -hmm. just sort of like yeah Working his way up from these kind of bit roles on TV shows and movies mm-hmm. and commercials. And now he's finally at this point where he actually has like uh, stands and fans and they're like devoting TikToks to him. And I think it's really well deserved. And he's not the only one. Like other people in the cast, like Helen, you really love Catherine Hahn, right? Yeah, I've been, I've been Catherine Hahn Hive forever, man. And I would like to welcome all the newcomers of the into the club with open arms and huge grins. Love her. But after this latest episode, the Catherine Harnhive has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been very pleasing to see. It's very I feel very vindicated. Yeah. We're seeing appreciation also for like Tuna Paris, um, who I first encountered in Mad Men so many yeah. years ago. Now was finally it Dawn? She- was her name Dawn? Yeah, that? she was she was Dawn the Secretary. Um, for Don, the ad executive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's like finally getting her shine here. And of course, like, I mean, the two stars, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, like, it's not a surprise. They're getting a lot of love as well, but they are like truly people are standing basically everyone at this cast, I yeah. think. Yeah. That's the most enjoyable thing about One Division because I think now as the episodes have been progressing, people have started warming up to One Division, and everyone is just staking claim into their favorite sub character, uh, you know, whoever is not the titular role. So um, it's been really pleasing to watch. It's been really nice to see that little community of fans, especially because a lot of people are in it. Then they're not they're not necessarily MCU fans either, much like me and Jenny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are latching onto more the the depictions of the characters and also the actors themselves because a it's a diverse cast, which is nice to see. But b it's also very you know much like Ted Lasso, family friendly, innocent fun. Like every all the characters that there's no real like someone like Randall Park is very earnest and Tiana Paris is very earnest and everyone's kind of latching onto that. It's I don't know it's it's nice. It gives me a fuzzy feeling. I do yeah. enjoy it. It's like nice unironic just like fandom and just standing yeah yeah and just like the the problematic standing (laughs) right and the week by week basis like we mentioned when we talked about wandavision in in an earlier episode like that's really helping this like gain steam and yeah it's again we know like shit about like mcu but the talk around this and the fandom around this is is like it's enjoyable it's yeah (laughs) it's fun Good for them, man. Good for Randall Park. I think he's uh, finally, finally getting what he deserves. Yeah. 
And I'll, I'll link a few examples of these, uh, very funny TikToks in, <laughs> yeah. in our newsletter if you want to check them out later. All right. So that's for culture notes. And that's what we've been watching this week. If you are watching anything that you think we should check out and seriously let us know because it's been a bit of a struggle for Jenny and I, uh, please email us at criticismisdead at gmail.com or you can just at us or DM us at criticismisdead or one word on Twitter and Instagram for extended show notes as always as well as links and everything that we've been talking about, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. It's actually really fun whenever it drops into your inbox every week, so I highly recommend signing up. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review on Apple Podcasts and maybe tell a friend about us. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Jijang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu. 